Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is Tim Walsh. Tim is a former professional rugby player who played for teams in Australia, England, New Zealand and Italy. He also played for the Australian Sevens team from 2002 to 2009. He began his coaching career with the Australian Women's Rugby Sevens team in 2013, leading them to both the inaugural gold medal at the Rio Olympics and the World Championship in 2016. He left the team in 2019 with an 85% winning ratio to take on the job as the coach of the Australian Rugby Sevens men's team. Tim is a coach with a deep passion for learning and development. And in this interview, you will hear how we use this to transform a group of athletes from different sports into a gold medal winning team that changed the way people now think about female participation in contact sports. He is self-reflective and calm and believes that composure when making decisions will determine how regularly the team stands on the podium. The key parts of this interview that resonated most with me were the use of a skills matrix to ensure you have the competencies you need within the team to realise its vision. The story of how we help the team stay in their performance bubble by focusing on ways to handle the things they knew were going to distract them so that they could ultimately leave the gold medal game with no regrets. And how successful teams have combinations of cohesion. 
This is a great interview with an up-and-coming coach who we expect to hear a lot from in the future, and I hope you enjoy it as much as Jim and I did. The Great Coaches Podcast. Tim Walsh, good afternoon, and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Good afternoon. Tim, how are you? Where in the world are you? What have you been doing today? In Sydney, and we're on a Tuesday, and the players at the moment, we're in a lucky country at the moment. The players are training sort of Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so a training-free or player-free day. So I had some opportunities to do some admin. Actually quite fortunate with the, with the time and not, well, unfortunate and fortunate that I'm not overseas and travelling the world with the sevens team, but I get to spend a week with each club team in Sydney and sort of look at the plays, build relationships and do some personal development for myself. So after this, I'll be off to, off to Sydney Uni to see how their systems and how they operate, which, is, which has been a really insightful and, and a great experience for me. Well, we appreciate you making a little bit of time available to us to talk about your coaching experience. And actually, before I jump into the first question, I would like to rewind a little bit because just five minutes ago, you were showing me an amazing chair in the players lounge where you are. Could you just describe that chair for everyone who's listening and how it's used? It's a chair that we we had designed and I contacted all of the past players, past captains and asked them to donate a, a jersey of theirs that had particular relevance in their in their sevens career, which ultimately is within the the fabric of of, of rugby rugby sevens in Australia. So they they each kindly and generously donated their jersey, and we got it made into this beautiful little lounge chair, and it's used in the in the team meeting for whoever sort of lives the values of, of the team, like trainer of the day, or or really does something that accentuates how we operate gets to basically sit in that chair for, for the team meeting. So it's just a bit of fun, but also very reflective of the team's culture. And the past has a huge influence on, on us and, and the Sevens program, how it evolves, but how we want to keep developing and, and, and leave our own, our own jersey or our own benchmark event that's going to sit somewhere proudly on that, on that chair. It's a wonderful idea. I can tell you I will be stealing that with great pride <laughs> immediately and putting something similar uh, into, into my office. So great. Thank you for sharing that. Tim, you've had some first-hand experience of some great coaches, Ben Ryan, Andy Keast, and of course, you and Mackenzie, to name just a few. But what do you think the great coaches do differently? Yeah, I have been, I'm very fortunate actually, wherever I ended up, I always ended up with, with a coach that would end up going coaching their country or, or another country or winning a gold medal. And I thought all those interactions had a huge influence on how, how I coached. In answering that question, I think they all had, they all have a vision and I think most people have a vision, but the ability to execute it is what is the difference between, I think, a successful coach and a, and a good coach. So I think everybody has the technical knowledge. Like we all played the game and we study the game and, and we love it. So the technical side of things. So it's how do you move from having this, this vision or this idea to actually then executing it. It's like in business, you have all these business ideas, but no one could, not nobody, but the rare people can actually execute it. So they're very passionate and true and authentic to themselves. And then they have their, have the ability to manage the situation and adapt. The two key ones is that they're true to themselves and they can situationally manage and lead through whatever environment it has. And that's usually derived from, from planning 
and experience. Tim, when I was preparing for this interview, I read a lot about you and what the thing that kept coming through time and time again was how much you love to learn. And it's interesting in your opening, you were talking about the fact that you're off to Sydney University tonight to, to, to learn how they do things. But I also read that when you're traveling, you put together little summaries of what you've learned as you've gone to different tournaments or different countries. And I'd like to ask you, I know we've been in this period of not being able to travel it, but if we looked at the last one that you wrote, what would we see? Yeah, it was LA, LA and Vancouver was our last one just before the, the COVID lockdown started. And we had, we had two games, one in LA, one in Vancouver, both were against New Zealand. And we, we lost pretty much on the buzzer. And it was about, well, scenario practice, but we, I call them, we coined them teabag moments. And you, I think Elaine Roosevelt said it, said it once, that you only know how, I use this with the girls, it was, you don't know how strong a, a woman is until, until you drop her in hot water. And she's referring it to being a teabag. So we call it like a, a teabag moment in those scenarios, but who's in control? Like we had the ball on, on both times. So it's understanding who is in control, understanding the scenario, and then how we can deliver a, a result. So those were the, was the key learning from an on-field point of view, is that understand the, the scenario so then we know what to do, but also understand who's in control. And generally when, you're in, when you've got the ball, you're in control. And disappointingly, on both occasions, almost in the same position on the field, we, we had the game in our hands and, and didn't, didn't execute. So that were the two from well, the, the last couple of notes from that tournament. So thanks for bringing that up. But, <laughs> but it's, it's all in our learning. And yeah, I think if we can not make the same mistake twice, then we can take that forward into whenever our next tournament is. I'll move away from that then. I won't dig into any other further learning around that. And let's, I'd like to ask you about something else. I love this quote from you, actually, when you said, sometimes it's the people least like you that can challenge you the most and lead you to different ways of thinking. Can you give an example of how this has helped you in your coaching? Yeah, I think like, generally someone's thinking different to you, then it's, it creates a bit of certainly some deeper thought, but some friction. And then you debate and look at things in, in a different way. And that ha happens in a multitude of, of different ways. And there's diversity within that. And I particularly within the women's, my time with the women's team, that's where a lot of that sort of came through. But just as, a, as an example, actually last week on a, an education course around the company directors and very smart, intelligent, academic sort of people that were talking about risk and strategy and and then everything they said, I was trying to like turn it back into my coaching role. And then you looked at like Fiji, they play this offload, high tempo kind of kind of game. And then you have teams that kick the ball. And you know, whenever someone sees someone kick the ball, I think it's it's high risk. So it's like, how do you do it? Do a an audit on your risk in terms of on field and. I mean, if you put in a process or have certain triggers that make that not a risk, so you see the Fijians do it, are there certain triggers or, or processes that go into an offload that allow that, that risk to be mitigated to something very minimal? So it was basically putting a, a system in place that reduces risk. And I know it sounds pretty, pretty basic, but obviously practicing it, but then having a process. So if you're doing an offload is... Are uh, there two or three or one defender in front of you 
is the person behind you calling for it? Have you sighted them? And did you execute the pass where you're finishing at the target kind of thing? So then if you sort of tick those boxes, then is it a risk? Not at all. Or if you're kicking, you know, kicking a ball, that you've looked up, used a vision, there's no sweeper, players called it, that player is quick enough or whatever it is in a better position and then you've practised the skill of kicking, then it's not a risk. So it was just, I don't know, it was just to, to reinforce, but it was listening to a strategist or someone, an academic that was thinking in a, in a, in a business way and then you can apply it to a, to a rugby field. Actually, talking about applying things to a rugby field from, from left field, when you were setting up the women's seven team, you took a very different approach, not trying to t- take 15s players and create sevens players, but you actually looked for athletes from different codes, different sports, and brought them into rugby sevens. When you got this diverse group of people together, what did you do first with them? Creating that, that vision around what we thought was going to win a gold medal. And then, so we had the vision and then it was like, okay, what, how are we going to get all those players to, together? So I basically had to do a skill matrix. So what, what was the competitive advantage going to be? And then what style of play that looked like? And then what we needed for that, for that or what attributes we needed for the, for the players, both mentally and physically. So basically a skill matrix and a, and a squad balance of all the different factors that would give us the outcome of, of that desired vision for that team so skill matrix and then so whether it be speed from from the athletic track like Elia Green aerial skills from basketball or Chloe Dalton the vision and passing and, and awareness from from touch players the contact skills and power running of a of a rugby league or rugby union player so all that is yeah a skill matrix and then going right we need a certain number of these certain number of these the way that we're going to play is going to be this way so we're going to need a lot of girls that have had the skill attributes already that were that they gathered from from touch football around awareness and ability to pass left and right at a high level and, and, and make decisions. So, yeah, developing a skill matrix and then and then picking the best possible options. And it's a huge effort from Rugby Australia to actually have that, but then being able to execute it and and have in place something that's going to actually attract these athletes and then give them the the time and the resources to be able to produce the result. So, yeah, I mean, I was, I was a, a cog in that wheel, which I was very thankful for, but ultimately, yeah, it was having the, having the vision and then the process of how to get there. And then, and that vision basically encompassed a skill matrix of, of players that were needed to, to create that. I mean, you talk then about very physical skills, jumping, running, moving, but you were also very successful at bringing in mental skills to the team that, that did win that gold medal. And I, I read about how before the big game in Rio, how calm the team was, dancing and singing apparently. <laughs> I'm wondering how you managed to create such a calm and focused group on that big stage, on that big day. Yeah, and it obviously happens over time. But we looked at our, our debilitators of the Olympics and – one of them, the biggest one, was probably the pressure or the ability to, to stay in your performance bubble. So we had all these different techniques around dealing with it, but we, first we had to identify what they were. So we got this, drew this big bubble on the wall and then put us in the middle and then we thought, okay, this is the bubble. What's going to come in there and try and, try and pop 
pop it, whether it be family and friends, social media, pets, tragedies, partners, you know, all, all that, all that kind of stuff. Pressure was obviously a big one and then develop techniques and how we were going to develop it. So preparation breeds confidence. So we had our, this is what could possibly happen. These are our tools in which we can, we can do it. And then a lot of it organically over the four years, like I think there's a certain amount of key things that successful teams always have and it's combinations and cohesion, winning experience. It's a culture that is reflective of your environment. So all these different factors that sort of go into it. But we had a really good group of people, of players, both staff and and players, that grew together and managed to tick all those boxes on the way in terms of winning experience, defining moments within within seasons, giving attention to what the debilitators are going to be and then building a culture that was very team team orientated and team first. So there was this this awe of of confidence knowing that if we performed that we were probably going to win and then just sort of breaking it down into ultimately it's a game of rugby could be anywhere but it just happens to be with a billion people watching but it's something we do day in day out and we didn't want to we wanted to leave that stadium without without any regret it wasn't the outcome that we were driving towards it was our performance and that's what was going to make us us proud is that we we went into that tournament not having any regret. We walked away from that tournament without regret. And that's exactly how, how they prepared. And I truly believe that's what gave them the confidence and the, the enjoyment is that living with regret is probably the hardest thing you can do. But they, did, they didn't leave a stone unturned. They were in a good, good position you know, for all those reasons I said. And it was like, we're here to to enjoy an experience that we'll never forget. And I don't know, it just sort of all, it's a, it's a tough one to answer, but when you break it down, you can sort of see why, but yeah, it's a formula that every coach is striving to do. And I think there's a lot of factors that go into it, but there was certainly an air of confidence in that room. And you can see it as, as coaches and as, as staff from the outside looking in that they weren't going to lose. It's a nice feeling to, to have. Of that team, actually, that, that you helped set up to win that gold medal, you said they were a team we thought could influence generations of young female athletes to take up rugby. Do you think you've achieved this? Definitely, yeah. And I think it's probably, it's not just female. I think they've inspired males to play the rugby. Everything sort of ended up in a really positive way in our favour. Like it ended up being a Tuesday morning in Australia uh, at 8 a.m., Australia v. New Zealand, it's almost like peak time in, in rugby and they went out and, and, and won. But the way that they did it, I think, was, was the most complimentary to them and, and the sport in Australia is that they reshaped what I think women's contact sport looked like. And I do remember this, this, one, this one moment. It was Australia versus USA. One of the USA girls, powerful, fast, like tremendous athlete. And then the Charlotte Castic was at the back at, at sweeper. And she's like hearing across the, the field. She's got the, the plaits and the ribbons in her hair. She's, she's lean, she's fast. And she absolutely drills this girl in, in a, a beautiful tackle, like textbook tackle of, of power and elegance. And then she like 
dropped to the floor. She just jumped back up to her feet before the other girl had even taken a breath, flicked a ponytail, over, a pigtail over her shoulder and strutted off to the, to what was next. And it was just like that moment to me was like, wow, that just changed a perception on women rugby players or, or contact sports in, in Australia. So I, I, I truly believe they had a massive influence on shaping the future of, of contact sport in Australia. So in answer, yes, I, I did inspire both females and, and males to play rugby. And I think that's pretty evident in some of the statistical data that's, that's been coming through since the inception of, of rugby. And it's not just, it wasn't just the Australian girls. It was the whole, all the countries, it was the whole Olympics. And that's the beauty, I guess, of the Olympics. And it gives you a platform to display your, your sport and various other political, other usages that it has. But uh, yeah. When you were appointed as the men's seven coach, Rugby Australia general manager, Ben Whitaker said that you are a quote, transformational leader and operates within a style that is process-driven and performance-based. So I'd like to ask you, what, what is a good process when it comes to rugby, your sport? It depends on what you're, what you're looking at. But if you look talking on-field, I, I work off like a four-step sort of process that, first of all, you got to deliver the, the knowledge, like to give the players the knowledge, whether it be your attack framework or your defensive framework or how to make decisions or different just the knowledge on on what to do where on, on how to play and then I demand players looking up using their vision so always scanning the environment scanning your team their team where the spaces are and then that information gives you the ability to make a decision so you've got the knowledge then you've looked up and you've got the environment or the the outlook on how to make the decision and then we, then we coach the skill to execute it so that's sort of the, the process I use is give them the knowledge and that could be knowledge around how to draw a player, but the knowledge around how this team operates in, in frameworks and say a defence system or a policy, in a tax system. So that's a, a, a different kind of process. Demand vision, then they can make a decision and then give them the skills to execute it. So that's the, that's the process I use. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com ACAST. When you actually took over the men's sevens team in 2019, talked about doing an audit and then creating a plan, you know, to take the team towards the Olympics. And I'm wondering from that experience, what advice you would have for other coaches who are starting in their role with a new team? Yeah, so I think definitely 
definitely take a look at your all the different factors, you know, the SWOT analysis, the environment in which you're operating in, but don't take someone else's plan or, or style and just plug it into into yours because you might have different players, different ages, different experiences, different maturity. So you do have to do it and you can use a lot of statistical data and all that kind of stuff. So audit it in all different aspects from politics to to playing styles to what you what you can have. So it's analyze what you have or can have and then develop a point of difference around that. And then then you you develop it so you get a competitive advantage and then you build your behaviors around that vision. So there's well I went into historical data around how we played comparatively to to successful teams. And then you look at overall, how's a, what does a successful team look in combinations and, and cohesion? And then looked at our political environment around what we could have. And just from that, developing what I think is going to be the competitive advantage and then, and then build it into your day-to-day. And you actually found some unique data when you went through that process, if, I'm, if I remember reading correctly. Yeah, which one are you referring to? <laughs> I think it was in relation to the amount of time that the men's team have with the ball and they're not getting into space as much or they have, nah, they're having more contact than, than their competition. Yeah. I just, that was one of them is that we were the, probably the, the highest contact team with, with Canada, the top teams, the top four teams were the somewhere between one and seven in terms of least number of contacts. And then look at our, our skill set or our body shape around the ability to contact. And then you look at the environment or the rules of the game, where are penalties coming from, where are they, where are balls getting turned over from? And a lot of it pointed to, to contact. So we had to get very good at contact. So not discarding that, but just saying a game that's probably better suited to, to the style of players that we have. And then of course, if they're not, then we've got to build the, build the team around that that's going to have that point of difference. So that, that was a glaring or, or, or a big one for me, you know, something that could be adjusted slightly. Yeah, and I think if you look at our results recently, it's actually shifted in a big way. I think we're now third or fourth in terms of contact and our consistency in our results has, has shifted a lot. So we feel like we're in, the, we're in a good position for, for Take Care 21. <laughs> Well, you know, speaking of consistency, you were recently saying that the difference between being on the podium regularly is learning to be consistent in the way that you make decisions and having composure when you make those decisions. And I'm wondering how it is that you help coach someone to make better decisions. Yeah, I know that probably doesn't ring true if you take those first, I think the first question you asked me around what was written on my last report and LA and Vancouver, we sort of didn't hold our nerve and didn't hold our composure. But you look at a game, a tournament in, in sevens, over the, over the weekend, a good team will probably have two or three games out of the six that come down to pretty much the last play of the game. A great team might have one, but a good team, and we're a good team, so there, there's a, those moments will happen quite, quite regularly. So they're really important to be able to, to perform un, under pressure, and that's where that sort of process has come in. It's a process-driven performance-based and then giving the players tools to be able to do it. And that, they've got to be, that's got to become part of your, your culture and, and, your, and your training. So out of your comfort zone, chaos. And I just find a lot, of, a lot of games that aren't related to rugby, it's more mental application that 
really put you in those positions. So I think there's a dartboard, yeah, dartboard in the background here. So there's like, we'll have tournaments in here that get one shot closest to the ball or whatever it is that, and how do you, and then you review it. It's like, how did you feel? What did you do about it? How did you handle that, that moment? Did you visualize? Did you breathe? Did you think about the outcome? Did you not focus on the process? So whether it be this or golf or anything, but you're constantly putting the players under, under pressure. And at the end of training, instead of, you know, I might get our kickers just to come over and get the whole team just to circle them and just absolutely berate them in the best way they can to, to see how they, if they can kick it under pressure. I've even got in our indoor training area here, I recorded the crowd on the iPhone and then hooked it up to the, to the speaker system and just played that while everyone's training in the, in the field. But just how you can block it out. So just continually trying to create scenarios that put you in that position. There's nothing better than in live and how do you create it, but it's just trying to understand it and then giving them, uh, giving them the tools to be able to do it. It's a great idea. Again, I might steal that one. <laughs> you, were the, um, you were the captain of the Australian schoolboys team and a professional player before you became a coach. So I'd like to ask you, what advice would you give to coaches when it comes to choosing a captain? I think they have to be the heart and soul of the team, the team's values. It's what the team needs. Like if there's a, if there's a real good balance of lieutenants or, or players that want to be led or they're in a development stage, like so what the team needs at that time. And that's, again, I think the difference between someone who has the, the vision and then the ability to execute it. And they'll realize that be through intuition or some sort of audit or analysis around this team's lacking this kind of leadership or lacking a leader and then this play here, if you give him the responsibility, he's going to have a real positive effect because of this, this and this. So it's very situational, but ultimately if the, that player has to live and breathe, as they all do, but ultimately live and breathe and create that identity that, that the team is, is delivering or, or living. It helps if they're, if they're one of the best players and they're always picked, but it's not always the, it's not always the case. I think it's yeah, what the team needs and that they're living what the team is about. You talked about values there, Tim. Are there any values that are central to your coaching philosophy? There's several, and I think you can't, you can't change them. And I think rugby is a great place that actually develops them over time. I think there's those espoused values in the middle where you can, you can adapt to and, and, and bring on, but ultimately on the, the foundation of who you are is, isn't really, isn't really going to change. And it, it is, it's ultimately it's, it's team first is like, what can you do that's going to make this team better? And that's probably the, the biggest, the biggest one. And then within the boundaries of that are obviously respect and ethics and, and all that kind of stuff. But team first but without any of all that stuff, you've got to have the trust to be able to deliver that. So that's what you have, to, you have to aspire to before anything is to have the trust of the people that, that you're working with. And I think once you've, once you've got that, it's uh, exponential growth. So during the uh, last few months, we've all had chance to sort of read or engage with new resources and watch different things on Netflix and listen to different types of music. I'm interested... Have there been any resources that you've engaged with in the last six to 12 months that have really helped you and you found useful in your development as a coach? Yeah, I mean, 
having time, which is what you sort of alluded to, is that you're sort of like scrambling from tournament to tournament and recovering and patching back up and going about. So you have actually had time to, to reflect. And then I, what I think was sort of, um, we thought of, well, I, I fell into the, into it was that, right. I got all this time, which I didn't really around personal development and really trying to better myself and, and make something used to this. But this whole pandemic is a personal development. Like we're dealing with a lot here mentally and all every organization is different but there's a lot of stuff going on and then you try and pile onto that something else which i did and i'm continuing to do but ultimately this is a probably the biggest personal development i'm ever going to have is trying to navigate an olympic program through a pandemic you're sort of like you got so many different issues finances and mental health and performance and relationships and in everything like so yeah initially just went hard at it talking to different people and how they're doing and what they're doing and and stories and and watching and reading and then just sort of really yeah take a moment and realize yeah handling this is going to be probably the biggest challenge you'll you'll i will come up to up against as a coach so focus on that mental health and uh, the stability of the of the team and the players is is the imperative and staff as opposed to my personal development because that is personal development is how you're going to look after this group of players and then you sort of then I, once I realized that it was like everything put myself in their shoes everything they had was sort of taken away I was like like I've got a young kids and family and a, and a wife and I can go home and and be in this be in this wonderful kind of environment and players like they're young men they got into rugby because you get to travel the world, play for their country. You know, there's the, financially, there's all these, all these wonderful things that just got, all of them got taken away. Their finances got massively cut. They're not traveling the world anymore. Like, they, they live for the team. And initially you were in, in lockdowns. You couldn't even see your, your teammates. The contact, like you've seen rugby players, like they tackle and whatever, but they're, they're always hugging and high-fiving and just there's a lot of contact. You're just taking everything away. I was going home to my family thinking, oh, this is sort of great. I get to spend time with my kids and reconnect with my wife in a way that I haven't done for a while. And that, the players don't get that. So I was like, wow, okay. Yeah, so they're in a, a very, I think, a very sensitive position that we needed to really address and how to fill, fill those holes and challenging them in a different way, changing their, diversifying their job role different ways to visualize or what can we work on? How can we get together? And luckily as things went on and we're in a wonderful country and a wonderful city actually, that we were able to, to get back to training relatively quickly and things certainly aren't great, but they're, they're, they're getting there. And we, when we do get there as a group, we can say, we, we did this. We, we got through this together and we're going to be better for it. Just one last question, if I can, Tim, and it, it builds on a little bit about what you were talking about there. I want to ask you about legacy. And there's this great video when you left the women's team, they, they put together this video to say farewell to you. I don't know who the player is, but right at the end, she says, I want to thank you, but I can't wait to take over your coaching job. And I, thought, <laughs> and I wanted to ask you, is this the type of legacy that you want to leave as a coach? Not particularly. No, I think that, that girl... She could coach the team if she wanted to, but I'm pretty sure she'll end up being a, 
a CEO of some top 50 company or even Rugby Australia, I, I don't know. But I think that the legacy is just to have an impact on a positive impact on people's lives. That to me is the foundation to building the game. Like it's, if you have this wonderful positive impact because they're playing this game of rugby, then that, that's just going to filter out into, into everywhere else, whether it be word of mouth or those girls representing or the guys now representing the game. And then that ultimately just has an, an effect. And this is what rugby's power has been for. That's the, the type of person that it has. So having a, yeah, my legacy, again, it's nothing, nothing really outcome-based in terms of having a positive impact on, on people's lives that, that will enhance the game, I guess, is the foundation that will enhance the, the game of rugby. Tim Walsh, on that note, I'd like to thank you very much for your time today. It's been a great discussion, and I wish you all the best on the road to 2021 in Tokyo. Thank you very much. It's been very enjoyable. The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi, everyone. It's Jim here, and you've been listening to our discussion with Tim Walsh. Tim is a terrific coach who is described as patient, wise, innovative, and thoughtful in a great tribute video that his players put together for him and we've included it in a link in the show notes. The highlights of this interview for me were his view that great coaches are authentic people who have a vision and the ability to adapt the team's execution to the situation. How surrounding yourselves with people who think differently from you creates friction and deeper reflection if you're able to encourage debate. And how his coaching is made up of four key areas, delivering knowledge, scanning the environment, decision-making, and skill execution. I hope you enjoyed this as much as we did. Coming up next on The Great Coaches Podcast, we'll be speaking to English football coach, Alan Smith. I I never wanted anybody to know I was a chartered surveyor. And if you think about it, I mean, I played against, or I managed against Alex Ferguson on six or seven occasions. And normally, that's as tough as it gets. You know, I was the manager when Canton got jumped in the crowd. But the point I'm going to make is you can't go into the players at half-time who are looking to you for help against Manchester United and say, guys, I can sort this out. I'm a chartered surveyor, don't worry. So I, I, I sort of shelved it, really. I, I, you know, I really did not want to go back to that academic route. And just before we go, coaches are not usually the type of people who seek the spotlight. And so if you can put us in contact with a great coach, that you know has a unique story to share, and we would love to hear from you. You can contact us using the details in the show notes. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>